Hello, everyone. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Project Moon Hut podcast series, The Age of Infinite. What we're doing is we're looking to learn from individuals from around the world how we can create sustainable life on the moon through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. Our desired outcome is to change how we live on Earth, or within Mirth, as we've called it, between moon and Earth, for all species. We have an unbelievable guest on the line today. It's Andrew Aldrin. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing well, David. Good to be here. Andrew is the son of the second man on the moon. He's got a long history in the space industry. He was a Sovietologist. He then moved on to US, uh, the U.S. and Boeing and uh, the United Launch Alliance. He has uh, been an a- he's an academic today. He was a former president of Moon Express. He has done everything you need to hear about in the space industry, except do what his dad has done. He's probably heard that before. So. We have an amazing topic, a title today. The name of the program is Space Entrepreneurship, Past, Present, and Future. So, Andrew, I'm assuming you have some bullet points or an outline for us. Can you share, please? Yeah. So, David, what I'd like to, to start out with is the notion that, you know, today is an amazing time in space that we have the opportunity, I think, <clears throat> to to actually execute on on two major shifts in space policy. The first is something we we tend to talk about a lot, which is space exploration. And that, um, you know, we are going to be, for the second time in humanity's history, going to another planet, whether that's the moon or Mars, uh, we are clearly embarking on that direction. So that's fantastic. And the second, um, which in many ways supports and kind of synergizes with exploration is the idea of a transition to a much more commercially based uh, space economy. And you put two, these two things together, and I think that people that are getting involved in space today have an incredible opportunity that no one has ever really faced before. But I, I think it's very important to understand, you know, it could go one way or the other. And so, what I want to talk about is that in many ways we've looked at commercial space um, before. There have been sort of three waves. And Before we start, so I'm to, 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 to make sure I follow you, because I want to make sure I'm learning here, the, we're, gonna, we're going to cover two topics, space exploration and transition to the space economy. Is that correct? Or do we have a third? What I'm really going to focus on more is transition to a space economy. Okay. I think if we get into the whole space exploration piece, we'll go well beyond this, the time we have available. And maybe that's something we can talk about later. Okay. Um, and, and so I want to start by talking about a little bit of history of space exploration and, and three waves of commercialization we've seen. And then I want to get into the topic of uh, space entrepreneurship and how important that has been. Um, not only today, because I think it's absolutely critical today, but I think it's important to understand the history of space entrepreneurship and, um, and how that relates to what's happening today. And then finally, I, I want to talk about how we teach people to be better entrepreneurs and participants in entrepreneurial ventures in space today and where, and finally, where the real sources 
of entrepreneurship are going to come from because it's not going to be just from the classic startups. I think a lot of entrepreneurship is going to come from other institutional sources. And, and I think that'll probably be enough to get us to the next hour. Okay, so so let's start with this. I guess it's the history, the three waves. Teach me what's yeah. going on here so I understand this. Yeah, so I think it's it's important to understand we, we've done this before. Um, and the first time it really came up was back in the 70s with the space shuttle. Remember when the space shuttle was first being designed, people were talking about it revolutionizing space transportation. It was going to be flying 50 times a year and was going to reduce the cost of launch by an order of magnitude through reusability. And, and you know, that didn't happen. Um, but it's, it's interesting to look just a little bit at that time. So, you know, uh, one of the things that came up recently was a, I read an article about the, the movie, the Stanley Kubrick film, 2001. And, you know, in that film, in 2001, there were these massive space structures with Pan Am space vehicles visiting them that looked a lot like the shuttle. Um, and, you know, we and I love the I, I love the Pan Am. I thought that was yeah, classic. Right. I, 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 I laughed when I saw Pan Am. It's, it's, a, it's, it's in some ways a metaphor because not only did does the spacecraft not exist, but Pan Am itself doesn't exist. No, it did not. Um, but, you know, one of the things that was interesting in that time that, that we forget is that um, we did actually have the first really commercial rocket company. Obviously, it wasn't the space shuttle, uh, but Conestoga, uh, run by Deke Slayton and, um, and some, a couple of other people, one of, one of whom is a friend of mine, Charlie Schaefer, and that was not very successful um, economically or technologically, but it was, in fact, the first real um, commercial spacecraft system. And of course, what was it? Was it this, what was it called again? Conestoga One. Conestoga yeah. One. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's a solid fuel rocket. I, I don't. I don't remember exactly what its payload was, but it was fairly small. In fact, you could probably look at it and see some parallels between that and some of the small launches that are being developed today. Anyway, you know, that whole program kind of came to um, a crashing close, if you will, with uh, sadly with the Challenger. And so um, that ended pretty much. And then, you know, and, and in some ways you could look at this first wave as the wave that just never broke. You know, it's kind of like you go out surfing and there's just nothing there. Um, then we get to the second wave, and I, and I kind of call this the wave that broke too fast and was too big. But, you know, if you go back to the 1995-2005, really it was pretty much done by 2002, I guess. Um, you know, we had a an incredible set of programs that was being considered that look a lot like what we've got today. So you had you had constellations like Teledesic that at one point was going to orbit 840 satellites. You had Skybridge, Ellipso, Celestri, Ico, uh, and and all together, you know, there were probably 1,500 spacecraft that were being considered, and, and money wow. was being spent on. 
They weren't just pure paper. Um, and, and you would have been looking at a potential of, of over $30 billion in investment. And that's probably at the low end. Um, and, and, of course, the launch people um, are never going to let, um, you know, a, a space fantasy get ahead of them. So we had, we had 13 different launch vehicle development programs, some of which were a little crazy, some of which, you know, actually made a lot of sense. You know, you had X-33, which is going to be a single-stage reusable vehicle that was supported by NASA. Lockheed put a lot of their own money into it. You had Kistler Aerospace, um, Rocket Plane. And so it was a pretty heady time. You know, the skies were going to be darkened with launch vehicles and people were building spaceports in every state in the United States. Um, it was pretty wild. But, um, you know, then reality hit and it was pretty harsh. So of the original 1,500 or so spacecraft that were being considered, it, the actual number that was deployed was an order of magnitude less. I think there's about 130 spacecraft uh, that were ultimately built and put in orbit, which is good news. So you had Iridium, Global Star, and Orbcom. And if you total up the money that they actually invested, it was real money. I mean, this is real capital stock in space of, you know, let's call it something between 10 and $15 billion. Um, and, and out of the 13 launch vehicle programs, you had three that actually survived. And one was Atlas, um, Atlas V, Delta IV, and then Sea Launch. SpaceX kind of was uh, not really part of this revolution because it wasn't a program that was being built to support these massive constellations. So that kind of comes as part of the next wave. But at any rate, so out of these um, 130 spacecraft that were that were orbited, and you know, business real businesses started. Um, uh, and and 10, 10 to $15 billion of investment, all of these companies went through some kind of reorganization, uh, whether, it was, whether it was Chapter 11 or just so, a sort of informal reorganization, and were resold to the um, distressed um, debt, distressed equity um, <laughs> investors for a grand total of, of about $80 million. So that's wow. $50 billion to $80 million and, you know, we talk about you know, space and the old axiom in commercial space is that, you know, if you want to make a small fortune in space, start with a large one. But this is ridiculous, right? Um, yes, it's a, that's, that, a, that's a pretty significant drop. It's almost the adage with the boats. Uh, that you just, that so they're not the worth the investment. The yeah, the, 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 uh, you sink all your money into the boat. That you'll, oh, that right. This, right, right, right. It's yeah. like a hole in the a hole in the ocean. <laughs> um, right. Um, so, and if, you know, in fairness, though these these three companies are, remain going concerns, and and they're operating on a capital basis of tens of millions rather than tens of billions. So um, it's a lot easier. And, and Iridium, Global Star, and Orbcom have, um, you know have been fairly profitable recently, largely, interestingly, largely they've been profitable um, 
selling to government customers. Um, so if you look at it, um, in some ways, the government has never been very good at venture capital. But you could argue in the case of Iridium, at least in particular, that the government was pretty good at, at vulture capital. You know, they, they were a pretty good distressed investor because the government is now buying bandwidth from, from Iridium on a, on, on a capital basis of, of $25 million as opposed to, you know, maybe $5 billion. So, um, and, and kind of a similar thing happened on the launch side. Of course, Sea Launch um, went bankrupt and is, I guess, still in this sort of murky world between Russia and the United States. But um, even Atlas and Delta, which are interesting stories in themselves, um, went through a, a contractual reorganization. And I think that both Boeing and Lockheed were very serious about getting out of the launch industry, in part because they had signed contracts with the U.S. government um, to sell launches at a and this is a shocking number. You know, they were selling launches at about $70 million a launch, which if you think about, you know, where their final costs ended up is a pretty remarkable number. It's also pretty close to what we're talking about, what we're paying for launches today. But so, yeah, it's a, it's uh, very Boeing similar Lockheed, to the launches. Right. And Boeing and Lockheed were on contract with the U.S. government and executed those contracts at massive losses because it turns out, their their real cost structure um, was well over a hundred million dollars a launch, and a lot of this was a result of, uh, you know, frankly, their own fantastic thinking, our own, because I was part of the industry. You know, we all thought that there were going to be forty launches a year, and it turned out there were four. And um, and launch, in fact, most space is very much a fixed cost problem, and so. You know, if you've got a billion dollars of fixed costs and you're only launching four times a year, well, you start at 250 million, right? Yes. Um, so um, that was an ugly period of time, and um, we, we. What did you just? Uh, what What did you yeah. play in this? Yeah. So fortunately, um, at the time I was uh, at Boeing, I was, uh, I think. At that time, I was director of strategic planning for Boeing's NASA business. And um, so we had these things called strategy councils where we decided how we were going to invest our money and everything. And I kind of came in. Uh, I started at Boeing in 2000 and really kind of worked into that position by 2002, 2003. So at that point, the, um, the bubble had burst and we were kind of in recovery mode. So I got to watch it from, so to speak, next door for a while as they restructured the program with the government. Uh, and then, of course, Boeing had its procurement integrity issues, uh, which was just a, a massive legal problem for Boeing where they, they um, ended up with data. How it got there is still kind of a mystery from... Um, from Lockheed Martin, I mean, massive amounts of data. And, and so that was a huge legal problem. So what happened in my case is I got, I was running uh, strategic planning um, at the time, business development, advanced programs, all of the front end of the business for the NASA business. And they moved me over to do that for the launch business in part, I guess, because <clears throat> um, I was absolutely clean. I had nothing to do with 
with this whole uh, lawsuit with Lockheed and procurement integrity and lots of um, ugly legal action. So um, uh, I ended up kind of in some ways inheriting that mess. And then we folded our, our launch business together with Lockheed's into uh, United Launching uh, Alliance, which is another interesting story. Anyway, you know, in terms of the, the macroeconomic... So we're, we're still in the se- second, we're still in the second wave, right? We are still in the second wave. We haven't gotten to the third one yet. Right. So the third wave is kind of what's happened over the last few years. And, you know, it, it, it bears some eerie similarities to what happened uh, 10 years ago now. Um, and that is, you know, you have people proposing constellations now with thousands of satellites. So instead of, you know, 1,500, we could have, if everything ends up flying, I haven't actually added up the numbers, but my guess is we're between <laughs> 10 and 15,000 satellites if everything flies. That's, and that's just incredible. Um, <clears throat> we've got... So maybe, maybe, maybe our pictures just got bigger. But there still is the there's still the exact same challenges that we have to face. There are the same challenges, the same business challenges. I think a lot's changed though today. So um, you know, it's worth talking about what's different today. I think one of the important things that's different is um, is the entrepreneurs who are leading what's happening today um, in. If you go back 10 years ago, a lot of what was happening was being driven by technologies and was kind of institutional. So, for example, with uh, with Iridium, you had Motorola behind it. I mean, clearly there were some individuals who were very much invested in it, but you didn't have a single person. Uh, same uh, holds with some of the other constellations. Um, what we have today, though, uh, is kind of a really interesting economic situation where you have some people who have accumulated massive amounts of wealth, <clears throat> partly, you know, stemming from things that happened after the, inter- the internet bubble in, in 2000. But, you know, you've got Jeff Bezos, you've got Google, you've got um, uh, Paul Allen, you know, you've got some people who have, amassed a huge amount of money who are dedicated to the proposition of developing space programs and they have very long-term time horizons for an economic return. In some cases, I'd argue that the economic return is kind of secondary. So that plus the fact that you've got a very different capital structure, you know, um, back in 2000, most of what was being financed was being financed through debts or companies own investment and what you have now is real big time financial players it's not just venture capital but you've also got fidelity investment you've got a very broadly based capital structure supporting these programs and so you put those things together and you have, and you say look <clears throat> i think the financial basis for what's happening today is very different the second thing is that um the technology is really different and so you know, 10 years ago, uh, it took typically five to 10 years to develop and, and put a spacecraft into orbit and hundreds of millions of dollars. And so today now, 
with some of the, <clears throat> excuse me, smaller form factor CubeSats and other small satellites, you know, you're talking about a couple of years and, and maybe single-digit millions of dollars to put multiple satellites in space. I mean, a wonderful example of this is Planet, where they're, they're literally putting hundreds of spacecraft into space using CubeSats and, um, and doing it for incredibly smaller amounts of money and building very capable systems. So the cost and the time to market has changed in a lot of cases, um, and that's a really positive development. So the, what hasn't changed, I think, is um, – well, I don't say it hasn't changed. I, I think it's more unknown – what the real communications and remote sensing markets will be. I mean, we thought that the internet 10 years ago was going to drive huge bandwidth demands for space. It turned out that could be handled by a combination of, of um, fiber optics and cellular networks. And today I think we're looking at uh, mobility and maybe in particular um, autonomous cars as being a huge driver. And, and maybe that's the case. We just don't really know. So um, it's you could very well, I think, see some combination of 5G, you know, taking away the demand for space and maybe high altitude platforms. I don't know, but mm -hmm. so I think that I think the market side of it is a huge unknown, which may or may not be similar to what happened last time. So it's I, I think the message in some ways is that we have to be a lot smarter this time than we were last time because I think. You know, there were some genuinely bad assumptions, and I think a little bit of collective self-delusion. Uh, I can tell you in the market. I, I, can the hear, market. I can hear some of that today. There's, uh, yeah. Well, you're right. It's, there, it, it may it's be there. definitely there. It, yeah. it, it's so it's so much there. I, I think I mentioned this on one other podcast, but I was watching a TED talk and the person said, I know why I know we're going to make it a space. I know why two words. And I'm thinking, OK, what does this guy know that I don't know? And he says, okay. Elon Musk. And, and so I said he... to my I said, oh, my God, he's put everything he believes that we're going to get. And he's talking about space. Everything is because Elon Musk is in, in the space industry. And that's delusional. That's not an understanding of what's really happening in the space industry. It's, it's, not, a, um, it's not a good assumption um, for the future of, of humanity if you really believe that space is an important part of that, which, which I do. But it's a weak assumption, let's just say, that... Um, you know, Elon Musk could fail for reasons that have very little to do with space. And certainly Absolutely. the single person is going to drive all of this stuff is um, is a problem. Now, the truth is it's more than just Elon. There's several people that are involved in it. But I, I honestly believe that, you know, the chance appearance of people like Elon, Paul Allen, Bob Bigelow, uh, Richard Branson, even, is um, it's a coincidence and it's a very happy coincidence, but it's not something that's going to persist. And so, you know, in some ways, these guys are creating, you know, I, I think I'm drawing from Heinlein and if you're sort of paraphrasing him, 
they're creating a sort of artificial salient of, uh, I don't want to call it irrational capital, but capital that's not as exposed to the quarterly requirements that normal capital would be exposed to. Um, and it won't exist forever. And the question is, can real solid ongoing businesses fill in that salient that they're creating? Um, and so I, I think to make that happen, we've, we've got to be smarter than we were in the past. And I think we have to have um, a better educated workforce to make it happen. And I think the job opportunities in this um, in the new space economy, the potential new space economy, are are kind of across the board. It's not just uh, engineers, although I think in many ways, you know, you have to be more than just a good engineer to make it in this economy. That's something I learned in uh, in Silicon Valley. Actually, I learned it very much in Boeing and, and United Launch Lines. Um, I also I think that we also have the mis uh, the. I think m the general public has a perception that whenever we're talking about space, we're talking about going to the moon or going to Mars. And the truth is that we're talking about space. We are talking about uh, microgravity work. We're talking about satellites. We're talking about uh, being able to map the Earth so that we can see what's happening in terms of agriculture. We're talking about mobile phones or, as, you're, as you said, the potential for something such as... Uh, autonomous vehicles and space does not have to mean everything and the end all of a space odyssey or being on rockets and traveling to the to other galaxies at this moment yeah you're right david in fact um i mean if you look at the space economy uh, and i think it's um the annual space report the last time it came out said the global space economy was something's starting to get up to 350-ish Right, billion that's dollars. the number. Yep. And and of that, you know, probably I'm actually 260, because I've got the numbers in front of me here, $260 billion of that economy is um, it's ground-based. It's, it's money yeah. being made on the ground from data from space. And, and only $84 billion of it is is actual satellite stuff, things that are being built. Actually, I see I'm probably wrong. It's probably more like a hundred billion, as I'm looking. But at even closer, I don't think most people know what a billion dollars actually is. Uh, it's it's more the point that individuals have gotten the same hype, and the ecosystem on Earth has to change. And I think that's in your next topic. You're talking about how we have to be better entrepreneurs in space we have to know more about space yeah and that's one of the that's that is one of the challenges you have or, or others are trying to solve so that's that's a huge obstacle when you have people who are delusional about what space really comprises and i don't mean that in a bad way i meant it's to, uh, i said it improperly what i mean is that it's ill-informed that mm -hmm. just a rocket going up is not space. There is a lot more to space than the rocket going up. Well, and in fact, right, the rocket is just an intermediary. The rocket itself does not make any money. It's it's what spacecraft do in space that makes money. So, so and, and it's actually so, not. 
it's not even what the spacecraft does in space. It's what it brings back to the ground that makes money. So if you very quickly, just because the topic is here and if we, uh, we'll make some time for it, can you tell me if assume I know nothing, which mm -hmm. I probably some people will say I know nothing. Uh, could you tell me some of the really amazing things, uh, just a few, hit, touch on them like you're skipping over icebergs. T give me a few things that are happening that are amazing that uh, I'd want to know about that would make me change my mind or think differently about the space industry. Yeah, so I think, I, I think it starts with um, the easy stuff. We know you can make money using communications in space. What's new and different um, is the notion that you can have much more instantaneous and ubiquitous communications from space by having a constellation with hundreds or maybe even thousands of spacecraft. And so your phone would directly connect with a spacecraft and, and would could instantaneously send high data amounts um, internationally um, from anywhere. Um, the second thing is, which in many ways is, is more exciting, but more uncertain, is the notion of ubiquitous Earth observation. So right now, um, you know, you might have a total of tens of spacecraft that are looking at the Earth at any point in time. And the majority so, so just of, for one just for one yeah. second, and I'm I'm doing this intentionally because there are people English is not their first language who will be listening to this. The word ubiquitous means that uh, it covers everywhere at at all. It'll you'd have a blanket over the top of the earth, so no matter where you are, so ubiquitous is everywhere. Just to every, give a, I don't know, if that's a good way to say it. Everywhere, all the time. So today. You might have tens of spacecraft that are looking at the Earth. Some of these are in geosynchronous orbit that are looking at one specific place from a very long distance away, so they don't really see much more than, let's say, clouds. Um, the others are orbiting the Earth in a low Earth orbit, which may be able to see very small things like license plates, um, but they only see them maybe once a week would cross over a point on the Earth. And most of these satellites are government satellites that are being used, frankly, for intelligence and military purposes. But today, what you have is the potential, at least, for hundreds of spacecraft orbiting the Earth at a low orbit, looking at every spot on Earth at every moment, being able to provide that data to someone um, anywhere on the earth. So, you know, literally I could look at what, what a boat is doing in, in Micronesia right now. Um, the question that, that comes up is what do you do with that? Um, I'm not going to pay a great deal of money to find out what a particular boat is doing in Micronesia. Um, but there may be lots of other things that that people will pay money for or that create value. So I, I think that remains to be seen, but it's a truly incredible capability. The third thing I want to touch on um, is in many ways a little bit of an enabler for all of this is that if you've got um, lots of spacecraft that are in space and, and let's just say in particular you wanted to um, – go from Earth orbit to geosynchronous orbit, it takes a great deal of uh, propellant. 
to get there, rocket fuel. And if you can get that rocket fuel from the moon it, at a sufficiently low cost, it could revolutionize space travel so that you would no longer um, perhaps launch entire satellites all the way to geosynchronous orbit. You might actually just launch pieces of satellites into low Earth orbit and have a tug, which is being fueled from the moon, carrying pieces of satellite and assembling things in space. And then the final thing is is actually using additive manufacturing in space to assemble spacecraft. And so uh, one of the biggest problems with spacecraft is they tend to want to have large antennas or large optics, and it's very difficult to fold that antenna or optic into a launch vehicle fairing. But if you can actually build these spacecraft in space, uh, using additive manufacturing, that, that could fundamentally change things, fundamentally change things. So, um, you know, I think those things are really kind of the revolutionary developments which may, which may transform space. I think it's, it's almost equally likely that we could have the same conversation in another 10 years and wonder why <coughs> nothing happened this time. And so, um, you know, I want to be clear that this is by no means guaranteed. There's a lot of stuff that can go wrong. So, so let's take, I guess, the next topic, which is teaching space entrepreneurship. Yeah. Uh, how, how, <clears throat> how can we do a better job? Yeah, so I think it starts with um, a concept of what is an entrepreneur what is it what does entrepreneurship mean <coughs> and i um i spent a little time thinking about this and the literature really wasn't all that satisf satisfying i mean when we talk about entrepreneurs we talk about people that take risk and and so that's helpful but you know an investor takes risk you know you can buy you could you could short tesla right now and that would be taking a risk and maybe you make money maybe you don't um but you don't really produce anything and I think what separates an entrepreneur from a risk-taking investor isn't just that they're producing products, is that they produce organization, organizations, lasting things which may produce very different products than what they started out with. And it's also the case that the, the entrepreneurs and the organizations aren't, um, aren't necessarily started purely in the private sector and purely in, um, um, in commercial industry. I think that if you look at it, uh, one of the, I think, most important entrepreneurs in space was a guy named Sergei Korolev, and he was the guy who created the Soviet space program. And Korolev came from, um, I, I would say, incredibly modest um, beginnings in that he actually uh, started out working with rocket clubs, enthusiasts back in the 1930s, ended up getting thrown in the gulags in the Soviet Union in the 30s, and then was uh, given the opportunity to leave the gulags and, and go find some German rocket scientists. And when he started, it was himself 
and about six other people from different ministries in the Soviet system under Joseph Stalin. And, and he brought together about 100 Germans and his own enthusiasts and tried to create um, – uh, it wasn't a space program at the time. It was just a rocket program, and nobody in the Soviet system wanted anything to do with him. It took him a year to find a ministry that would actually sponsor his program, and he was given a position, you know, sort of a low-ranking position, running a small division in a bigger research institute, and, and slowly over time managed to create a ballistic missile program and ultimately a space program. And one of the most incredible stories of entrepreneurship and risk-taking uh, that you could imagine. But here was a guy in the middle of the Soviet system that was, I, I think, one of the truly incredible space entrepreneurs. So it's not just, you know, sort of Bill Gates creating Microsoft um, or Elon Musk creating SpaceX. Entrepreneurship happens in lots of different places. And I think well, you brought important. up you brought up Planet, and the guys from Planet worked for NASA. Uh, they worked for NASA. Yes, they did. Well, they yeah, they you know that's actually a wonderful case because um, you know Pete Warden did a fantastic job of bringing in bright people into NASA Ames and encouraging them to come up with great ideas, and then most of them ended up taking the great ideas and starting companies. So yeah. uh, the government can often play a very important role in, um, in, in creating new businesses in space. And I, I honestly believe that you know, space is really difficult just in terms of time to market, in terms of the amount of investment, in terms of the breadth and depth of technical expertise that you need in order to be successful, that it's really hard to do it without um, – without something to draw upon, whether it's a company or a university or uh, even in, even government agencies. So, yeah, it's going to come from lots of different places in the future. So how is what's your take on teaching people? How do we how do we do a better job? So I think one of the things that we need to do is recognize that that in the U.S. in particular, we do a fantastic job of creating great engineers, brilliant technical people. But one of the things I learned, not just um, in Silicon Valley, but running advanced programs at Boeing and ULA, is that um, you have to be more than just a smart technical person because people can come up with great ideas, but if they don't understand the, con the context, whether it's the business context, whether it's the organizational context, and they don't understand uh, the the broader business and how to sell that business internally, externally, um, they're going to fail. And so I think what we're trying to do with the program I'm putting together is actually take people who are already technically excellent. Just because you and I had a short conversation before this, you might want to go into what you're doing. Okay, so... One of the things. <laughs> Was, no, as much as you're talking to me, there are other people listening. Yeah. Well, so I think um, I'm really excited about a program we're starting at Florida Institute of Technology with the International Space University. Uh, we call it the ISU Center for Space Entrepreneurship and Commerce at Florida Tech. And what we've done is we pulled together um, five other universities right now 
we've got um, Ohio State, Purdue, Embry-Riddle, University of Florida, University of Central Florida, um, into a, a sort of um, a consortium where students can take their first year master's program, whether it's aerospace engineering, engineering management, business. Purdue is even sending students in here that, that are studying education. Um, they do their first year of studies for their master's degree, and then they take four courses with us that we're teaching at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex in um, space policy, law, um, uh, commercial space programs, space technology and systems, and of course, there's a program in entrepreneurship where students will um, get together with other students from other universities, other disciplines, and build business plans. And then at the end of the six-week program, we actually do 12 um, credit hours in six weeks, so it's an incredibly intensive program. They're going to present to not just faculty and industry members, but we've also got venture capital with the Space Angels Network participating. And so some of these students that have got great ideas are going to get investment. Some of them are going to take their businesses into, um, uh, into incubators. And um, some of them are just going to go get great jobs in industry. Uh, let's see, we've also got NASA, Kennedy Space Center, the Aerospace Corporation are participating with us. Uh, and we're running the whole program, as I mentioned, at the visitor complex at Kennedy Space Center, where uh, we're actually going to be teaching the classes in a place called Mars Base One, which is a um, uh, an education center that's themed to look and, in fact, has real experiments um, that you would be conducting on Mars. So you're actually going to be we're going to be teaching this course on this whole program on Mars. Um, it's going to be also a very, very uh, much based on real world. So, for example, in the commercial programs course, uh, which I'm going to be teaching, we'll have some sort of basic business and space business understanding how space is different. But the, the core thing that students are going to do is they're going to evaluate other companies that are either new participants in space or existing companies that have commercial developments. And they're going to present as sort of an analyst perspective on that company. And then we're going to bring representatives from the company in to basically pitch their company. And we're going to see what the differences are between the students' evaluations and what the companies are going to tell us. And so students are going to get real-world opportunities to evaluate companies, to participate with people. Um, it's, I, I think, just going to be a fantastic experience. And, you know, we'll be bringing in chief engineers and vice presidents of en engineering to talk about uh, the technology and systems will be bringing in people uh, with real Washington so, experience to participate in uh, the policy. So, so it's from my perspective, and, and I'm going to give just for the people who are listening one little note. This the Space University is out of uh, is out of France, I believe. Correct. National Space University is in Strasbourg, France. Yes. Strasbourg. Okay. Uh, yeah, and and they. They've graduated about 4,500 students since its inception. And yeah. its focus is primarily on the space industry. So it sounds like, and from what I'm hearing, and you tell me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you've, you're converting it more into an academic combined, accelerator combined, incubator type system. So that yeah. there's a, there's a modification of what's happening over in Europe. We're here 
the objective is not to learn about space and get a job in the space industry. It is to become more engaged in the entrepreneurial side, become more engaged in the development of new ideas that can be facilitated or, or funded in a way that would not have been done otherwise. Am I Absolutely. kind of saying that correctly? Yeah, I think what what distinguishes it from a lot of other space incubators and, and programs that are out there right now is that it is built on a very solid academic foundation. What we intend to do is create the best trained, best educated future leaders that are going to have real degrees from, you know, whether it's Purdue, Ohio State, or Florida Tech. Um, and so it's more than just um, doing a workshop in entrepreneurship. It's, it's actually, you come out with a, um, I, I believe, will be the most prestigious degree um, in space studies that you can have. And, and, you know, for someone who did hiring in, in both major and entrepreneurial companies, I think coming out with a, um, a real academic credential is something that stays with you for the rest of your life. And so uh, that's what we're trying to create. So it, the, the, are we teaching something different? I mean, I know we're teaching because technology has changed. I know we're teaching right. differently because the ecosystem has changed. Yeah. Are we are we changing fundamentally what we're telling individuals about how space can be I don't know managed could be that we can get there faster. Is there some unique twist that makes this work? Yeah, so I think there are two things. I think one is that we're taking classical engineering, if you will, and then adding as a foundation and then adding on top of that the breadth of knowledge and understanding you really need to be successful. So you don't come out just as a great engineer. You come out with a great engineer who understands how to apply that engineering in a space business context. And so I think that's different. I think the other thing that's different is we're going to be coming at this from a perspective of lots of real-world lessons learned. Um, my belief is that there are lots of people that are out there right now kind of cheerleading for new space, and it's great, and there's tremendous enthusiasm out there. Um, but we don't really need cheerleaders. We need mentors. We need people that have been there that have, in some cases, um, that in some cases failed and and understand that space entrepreneurship doesn't just take place um, in the garage, that in a lot of cases, some of the great um, opportunities for space are going to happen inside companies, inside governments, you know, where we build public-private partnerships. And, and so it's going to be people that have real-world experience that are, that are talking about what really happens and how to make your business plan stronger by understanding how they can fail. The the challenge that I'm running into, and I'm playing a little bit of a devil's advocate here, not yeah. to be controversial, I'm actually thinking this through, from many of the higher level, and I'm going to use that term higher in a relative term, higher level meetings that I've been in with people in the in space industry, you tend to find older people 
who tend to have very similar concepts and constructs <clears throat> and they're selling it in a different way but they haven't changed what's to say that learning from the past from these lessons learned are really the lesson that needs to be learned just as yeah. if we look at innovation and we know that disruption comes from the outside it doesn't come from the inside typically so right. what, what, are, what are you doing here to get the, so, I said, kick out the old, bring in the new? Well, I think it is, um, you know, if you look at the companies that are being successful, a lot of them are successful. The, the new starts are successful because they are bringing in the right kind of people that have some experience. If you look at SpaceX, and, and we had this at Moon Express, what we called it was, you know, sort of a, a combination of Obi-Wans to Paddywans, where we thought that having about 25% of the people with, with real world was ex experience was good. Um, and one of the things that I noticed in Silicon Valley was that there was no shortage of, of great technology. There was no shortage of energy and enthusiasm. There really even wasn't a shortage so much of, of money chasing energy and enthusiasm. But, um, what was almost non-existent was um, responsible management techniques where, you know, I came into Moon Express and, and there wasn't even anything approaching um, an integrated schedule. People were just kind of making stuff up and there was nothing systematic which told you what to do, how to spend your next dollar you know did you spend it on your highest risk did you spend it on what just happened to be the ceo's fancy at, at the moment um so i think the lack of rigor um was a problem and in talking with investors one of the hugest issues they face isn't technology it's quality management and so i think we have to come up with better ways of blending the two um you're mm -hmm. not going to be I won't say you're not going to be successful. I think um, the successful ventures, whether they're, they're new starts or whether they're coming out of existing companies or government bureaucracies, are going to be led by young people that have the enthusiasm. But they're going to be, they need to be smart enough to figure out what the right good advice is. Um, you know, we can't. I don't think we have room to spend money stupidly anymore. I don't think we, well, actually, I would I would probably flip that a little bit. I think we're spending more stupid money, uh, a lot of these cryptocurrencies, a lot of the investment yes. models. The, the, the WeWork is now becoming a, an investment arm and buying Lord & Taylor's building for $150 million more than the other bid that was going in on it. So yeah, I so, would say that maybe we haven't improved in that one area. Well, but it's, so let's take small launchers, which I'll, I'll, I'll pick on because um, I, I, it's an obvious target for me. So you've got, I don't know, maybe a dozen companies that are, that each of whom is saying that they're going to build 50, they're, they're going to have 50 launches a year and the sort of 500 kilogram um, payload range, let's say 500 and under kilogram payload range and um 
and they're basing this, I think, notionally, most of them, on the idea that they're going to be launching these massive constellations. Well, the massive constellations are going to go on big launch vehicles because for on a dollar per kilogram basis, it will always be more cost effective to fly on a larger launch vehicle. So that part of their market is uncertain. The individual sort of, let's say, onesies, twosies, tensies of CubeSats are not large numbers. They're certainly not going to sustain, you know, hundreds of launches a year of small launchers. And so the question becomes, you know, first of all, you could just have a, a, um, uh, a sort of bloodletting where lots of these companies simply won't be successful. And I buy that. I just wonder whether more than one supplier, whether the market can support more than one supplier. And so I see these companies that are basing their business plans on 50 launches and unable to survive unless they've got 20 as kind of a throwback to what happened back in you know, 10 years ago when we did 20 years ago, almost when we, and, and when that's, we did that's kind before. of, that's kind of my point is that yeah. there, there, there's a, there's a dual value. One of them is you have 12 companies trying to innovate differently, creating new models, whether it be process models, uh, tooling, uh, technological advances, and those will fail and new, new versions will evolve. The question is, will it evolve at the right time in the right place to make sure that the ecosystem survives instead of a total collapse across the spectrum? Yeah, and and so if you if you want to use the the uh, the analogy the, the analogy of, a, of an ecological system, I you know I think we're creating um, way too many. I don't. I forget what what the what the finch was that Darwin saw in the Galapagos, you know. But we're mm -hmm. creating way too many gold billed finches because a lot of these companies look exactly the same, and you don't have the sort of um, economic and business diversity that's really needed to create a healthy ecosystem. But so if we again, I pick on the small launchers. If everybody is out there building a very high technology. Um, 100 kilogram launcher for 50 launches a year uh, with a very high capital investment and very high fixed cost because they got to do 50 launches a year, then there is no diversity. Where's the company that's, that's building a, a rocket which um, may be really low tech and may be able to survive perfectly well at five or 10 launches a year and then can grow to 50 launches a year? I mean, from my perspective, those are going to be the the gold build finches that are going to survive. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to just stop you on that note, just because I think it's a good topic, a good conversation for other people to follow through with. The ecosystem has to be an ecosystem, the balancing right. of the trees and nature. And I think we tend to be going in one direction. And maybe that's because of how we market, sell, promote the space industry. But in the last few, we've only got a few more minutes left. If you were right. to with your life's experiences of all the things you've had in space, and I know that you've probably been overwhelmed with the amount of questions that have been asked, what's the one point in time or history or lesson that's the one that you remember above all else? Yeah, so I think what that would, uh, that would go back to um, 
you know, the realization when I was a graduate student at UCLA working at the Rand Corporation that the conventional wisdom um, about the Soviet Union and the Soviet space system was that everything was driven from the top down. And as I started talking to people, I realized that it, it wasn't. It was driven in many ways by the same dynamic that we have in any entrepreneurial ecosystem. People with an incredible drive to do something and make it happen that are, that are willing to overcome obstacles. And I think it was that realization of, um, of entrepreneurship in, in the most challenging system that, um, that really struck me. And it struck me in a couple of ways. I mean, one was maybe it just sort of fed my own contrarian instincts to, to just naturally challenge the conventional wisdom. But the other was to say that, you know, you really can make things happen in the most unlikely scenarios. And it was, um, it was a remarkable time just because, you know, the Soviet Union was coming apart at the seams and I just, I, through dumb luck, ended up plopped into a country where I had access, you know, literally to the people that made Sputnik happen. And, and it was just a very, very short window in time. And so that was pretty remarkable. And that stayed with me the rest of my life. It's interesting you bring that up because you ended up working for large corporations such as Boeing and ULA, and it's yeah. almost as if, you know, what happened? Go um, do some entrepreneur. <laughs> right. So what happened was um, it was an interesting story because I started out at a very um, – when the Soviet Union fell apart and I was at the Rand Corporation and I had been – kind of helping some aerospace companies uh, understand what was going on in Russia, in Russia. And one of them, TRW, just said, hey, why don't you come and work with us? We're, it's a small shop that we have that does purely international business development. So I did that, and that was just really cool. It was a small shop, and I kind of enjoyed it. It was a little entrepreneurial. And then uh, uh, Brent Sherwood at the Boeing Company came to me, and he was starting a very entrepreneurial and sort of strategic thinking shop and at Boeing, which was uh, it's called Strategic Architectures and New Initiatives. And so it was envisioning the future and then picking the great opportunities to make that happen. And that was just incredibly cool. And so I did that. And But now at that point, I'm kind of committed to being in big aerospace. And I had thought at the time, you know, if I do this for 15 years, let's see how it works out. And And it was almost 15 years to the day that I left ULA and, and went to work for Moon Express. Um, so it was, a, it was mostly serendipity, um, a little bit of planning, a little bit of preparation. Um, but I, I will tell you that I'm a, I am a much happier person outside of the aerospace industry. <laughs> but, yeah. It's, a, it, it's, it's an inter... It's an interesting story because you have this whole uh, your moment in time became something different, and it did. It did. And, and the, I, I'm not picking on you. It's just an, an observation that I had. I'm listening to saying, "Here's the gap." So yeah, oh, I, I appreciate you taking the time, Andrew, to spend give us some history on what has happened and to. 
Uh, I love the part where we just kind of diverged into a little bit of your history. I love the the context of understanding what you're trying to do with the new educational system. And I think for everybody here, I wish you the best of luck. Anybody listening, we wish that you do well with your endeavors, that this becomes successful for you. So uh, from Project Moon Hut and the Age of Infinite podcast, we thank you. Thank you very so, much, David. I appreciated this discussion. Well, the uh, for all of you out there, you can always participate with Project Moon Hut. Learn more. We're updating our website as we move along, and we make progress as to creating that sustainable life on the moon through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, which we talked about today, is getting that larger ecosystem to be able to support where we're going. So you can sign up on the website for what we're working on as a big data solution uh, to some of the challenges that we're facing. You also can participate by going to and, and liking us at uh, facebook.com forward slash Project Moon Hut. And uh, you can also connect with us at Project Moon Hut on Twitter. So there are many ways to get a hold of us. We thank you for taking the time. So for everybody, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.